0: Welcome to Intermittent Signal. I'm David A. Westbrook. This is episode five, Afghanistan, we hardly knew ya. Why the lessons of Vietnam were not learned. Much of this talk was published as an essay in Telos, Critical Theory of the Contemporary, Winter 2021, page 147, if you want to read it. Some months ago now, the United States withdrew its forces from Afghanistan. It's hard to know exactly what forces means in out-of-the-way places anymore, but for present purposes, we can take the statement at face value. The withdrawal withcrawled the withdrawal from Vietnam after a similarly long and frustrating, maybe pointless war. I pondered all this in my heart, as was said of Mary, though I'm hardly immaculate. And I wrote a long essay, which is what I do, and was about to post the resulting podcast, this podcast more or less, when the Russians invaded Ukraine more pondering. I'm not going to hold forth on the Ukrainian situation. There has not been enough time for me to make up enough of my mind to write, but I do want to suggest a fundamental problem for thinking about the interventions in Vietnam or Afghanistan, for the Russians and for us, or now Ukraine. Some of you may recall the famous etching used for the front piece of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, The etching is by a French artist, Abraham Boss, and appears on most paperback copies of Leviathan. Hobbes himself evidently advised on the composition. If you have not seen it, it's worth looking up, but since this is a podcast, a short description will have to do. A monstrous man emerges from the landscape. He's wearing a crown, and so must be a king, and yet the word Leviathan means huge monster, especially of the deep. One thinks of a whale, but maybe something else. This king holds the sword of state and the crozier, a sort of ecclesiastical scepter. That is, Leviathan embodies the unity of sovereign authority that Hobbes argued was required to prevent the war of all against all. It's a great visual representation of a complex philosophical argument. Quite an achievement. If you look closely, however, you see something else important for my purposes this evening. The man's body and arms are comprised of people, hundreds of them. They are looking away, faceless, but they are people, presumably doing whatever it is they do. That is, the sovereign can only be perceived as a sovereign from a distance. From closer up, within the crowd, the sovereign cannot be seen. When we speak of whether a nation is right or wrong to invade a country, as we cannot help but doing, we are operating at enough distance to conceive of the nation itself as a moral actor, like a king. Similarly, When we think of the nation, quote, learning, close quote, from history, we treat the nation as a mind and an educable one. An actual invasion, however, must also be carried out by the countless people who make up the body and arms of Leviathan, acting in concert. It is often important to think of these individuals as citizens or inhabitants, which tends to a certain atomistic view, the individual vis-a-vis the sovereign. And that is, indeed, a traditional way to understand Hobbes and what is modern about Hobbes. For present purposes, however, it is more important to think of such people not as atomistic individuals, but in association. They may be soldiers, officials of various sorts, constituents of this or that part of the state or of society, because it is in and through such associations that invasions are made. The context in which such individuals act, more or less morally as the case may be, is not the context of Leviathan writ large, the nation as a whole, but of people in small groups, sometimes even singularly. Similarly, what is learned or not is learned from the immediate context of individuals as much or more than what is learned from the vast and therefore abstract context of the nation itself, history with a capital H, which we can only know through books and other forms of mediation. And it is quite possible that, it's what happening, that what is happening at the level or granularity of the crowd is not what is happening or thought to be happening at the level of the sovereign. That is, maybe Leviathan does not move with the sleek power of a whale in the ocean. Maybe Leviathan should not be thought of as a king making decisions one hopes good ones. Maybe Leviathan is closer to the golem of Jewish legend, a creature created by people for their own protection, but badly done. Maybe Leviathan, like the Gollum, is awkward, powerful, but not entirely in control even of himself, and therefore often dangerous. I think this slippage between the nation and the people who make it helps us to contextualize how the United States could have learned so little from Vietnam, and perhaps perhaps helps us think about the Ukrainian situation, too. Or, at least, I think that's what the story I tell about our involvement in Afghanistan suggests. At any rate, here's the essay. Afghanistan, we hardly knew you. Why the lessons of Vietnam were not learned. A long time ago, this past midsummer, the United States left Afghanistan, or at least its main body troops left. Much as the Taliban said it would, as everybody knew it would sooner or later, didn't they? Kabul fell almost immediately on August 15th. Small irony, I read on Armistice Day, November 11th, The U.S. government claimed to be surprised at the speed with which the Afghan military collapsed. Just speculating, but with the endgame clear, maybe nobody on what had until recently been our side wanted to be the last to die. For the United States, there was little time to get its weapons, much less many people out. The evacuation was completely foreseeable, yet mismanaged. Chaos. For the first time in many years, the war in Afghanistan held global attention and for several news cycles images of desperate people hanging to and then falling from transport planes, other human anguish, solid television. The withdrawal from Afghanistan recalled Vietnam and especially the evacuation of Saigon in 1975. All of this seemed meaningful in the scheme of world history or geopolitics or something. And for a short while, there was a lot of discussion. Not even a whole semester later, however, Afghanistan is already fading from view, displaced by other concerns, other images. Voyeurs tend to be impatient, and the fall of Kabul seems like a long time ago, if not completely forgotten. For those who look for such things on what used to be called the back pages, there has been some speculation about how the Taliban will rule, what might they do to the former government and its, our, allies, to various ethnicities, and especially to women and girls. There is some question over whether the Taliban can run a country. A humanitarian crisis looms, maybe, has come to pass. Also, it is not obvious that a bunch of rural insurgents knows how to conduct a defensive struggle against urban terrorists, namely ISIS-K. And there has been a worry that Afghan refugees would precipitate a migrant crisis, especially in Europe, like the refugees from the Syrian conflict did a few years back. To date, however, unfortunate Afghans have not created a crisis elsewhere. We shall come to know. But for now, this is all background noise. I mocked the evanescence of public attention, not because I expect much more in the internet age, but because I do expect more thoughtful consideration, more seriousness from national security policy than I do from social media or commercial journalism. Security policy would seem to require a sense of history. Forgetting concerns me. How did we as a nation forget the lessons of Vietnam? The United States even publicly announced that it had learned from Vietnam, The Powell Doctrine, successfully deployed against Iraq in the first Gulf War, was presented as a rebuttal of U.S. strategy in Vietnam. The thrust of the Powell Doctrine, it was said, was to use overwhelming force to avoid getting our forces, quote, bogged down, close quote, in a long-term small war against an embedded local adversary. But in Afghanistan, we did just that. The analogies between the two wars are eerie. The local histories of great power defeats, the talk of cultural understanding, of winning hearts and minds, the effort to stand up an army, even while relying on superiority of air support, command and control, supply chains, technology generally, when we commit our own troops, the increasing reliance on raids conducted from fortresses, laying waste, as Thucydides would have it, assassins and anthropologists, opioids, enemy bases and supply lines across the hazy borders, etc. Most importantly, The decisive narratives of the wars were essentially the same. In both Vietnam and Afghanistan, our adversaries were not wrong in branding us as foreign and the local government as corrupt puppets unworthy of their allegiance. Our victories became crimes and our presence became an insult and, quote, winning, whatever that would have meant, became impossible. In both wars, depending a bit on how the counting is done, the U.S. fought for about 20 years and left. Of course, there are differences between the wars, too. For example, Vietnam is a hot, wet jungle country with low mountains. Afghanistan is a cold and arid country with astonishingly high mountains and some places so high that helicopters struggle in the thin air. Drones work fine. They're just completely different. To be less flippant, if hardly forgiving, the immediate reasons for our entanglement differed. Evidently, to the extent that we did not recognize the fundamental similarities, and so the repetition of errors, at least not in time. So, what is to be said about the conduct of our longest war, and the implications of our defeat, or perhaps merely loss of interest? Note, first, that the question is really about the United States, not Afghanistan, which is a long way away, obscure, otherwise unimportant. Americans, myself included, tend to have difficulty understanding things in other terms. That is, we are almost always talking about ourselves. Obviously, our parochialism, better myopia, is part of the problem when projecting force thousands of miles away. But the myopia is somewhat understandable. Beneath seemingly specific policy questions lies the mystery of what the United States is in some fundamental or transcendent sense, or at least what we should believe it to be, and so how... We should feel, should legislate, should fight. We are no ordinary nation, at least not at this juncture in history, nor really an empire. And so how should we conduct our wars? Parochial, maybe, but these are good questions, needful questions. From this perspective, Afghanistan is only incidentally a proper noun with its own weather, flora and fauna history, a place where people live out their lives. Consider words like frontier, wilderness, suburbia, capital, or metropolis, words that name not only spaces, but also, and more crucially, social and political situations. Now consider names of particular places, for example, Everest, Tahiti, or Siberia, that convey something about the soul, even for people who have never visited. They're more symbol than place. In the same vein, for an American, the South, or the West, Are not merely directions or even regions, but also contexts, often more importantly so. Afghanistan, like Vietnam before it, is such a word for the United States security community, a field on which the nation has sometimes expressed itself. Presumably, Afghanistan is also somebody's home about which they care, but we don't, not really. Afghanistan as such is simply not at issue in geostrategic terms. Instead of a nation, Afghanistan names a place where we make history, a canvas. We are history's actors, as Karl Rove is said to have said. Progressive often deride this statement and then talk about the need to secure human rights. If Afghanistan essentially names the canvas, then what picture was the United States trying to paint? There is no one answer here. We have had many Afghanistans. U.S. policy has been conducted and criticized in accordance with different visions over the years, as sketched below. Indeed, it is the very multiplicity of our Afghanistans that is the best indication that Afghanistan was not understood on its own terms, but in terms of our shifting aspirations under the circumstances in which the United States found itself at this or that juncture. A little art history might be instructive. In 1979, when the Cold War was still a thing, as the kids say, the Soviets were worried that their client, the communist government, headed by General Secretary ha- Hafizullah Amin, might defect the Americans. Also, much of the country was in open revolt. On Christmas Eve, nice touch, Soviet troops rolled into the country. Within a few days, the Soviets staged a coup, killed Amin, and installed his rival, Barbak Kamal. Insurgents collectively known as the Mujahideen violently resisted, and the Soviet-Afghan war had begun. At first covertly, and then not so, the United States was happy to be armed supplier to the Mujahideen. Helping the Afghans blow Soviet helicopters out of the sky was not only supporting freedom fighters, it was sweet payback for past Soviet support of our adversaries in other conflicts. An oddly sexy movie, Charlie Wilson's War, was made about our support of the Mujahideen, with every man Tom Hanks and the sublime Philip Seymour Hoffman. The Soviet effort to stabilize the country bogged down. From 1988 to early 1989, the Soviets withdrew in orderly fashion, we must enviously admit. On February 15th, General Kromov walked last across the Friendship Bridge over the Amu Darya. Not one Soviet soldier or officer is behind my back. Classy. The Soviet Union continued to support the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan even as the Republic proceeded to lose what came to be called the Afghan Civil War. As the Civil War inflicted great misery, a group called the Taliban, literally students, conquered much of the country, promising to impose a very stern Islamic order. The Taliban were supported by Pakistan and various Saudi interests, including those associated with al-Qaeda, the base, a group led by Osama bin Laden. The Soviet Union was formally dissolved on Boxing Day 1991. The Democratic Republic of Afghanistan collapsed in April of 1992, when the Taliban took Kabul The civil war continued though with the northern alliance opposed to the taliban some western commentators mostly of a progressive bent blamed the humanitarian disaster of afghanistan on the u.s support for the mujahideen and the failure to build schools and the like such criticism intensified and was denounced after al-qaeda's spectacular attacks on the united states on september 11 2001. again it is always about us in the wake of 9-11 The U.S. government painted yet another picture of Afghanistan as a sanctuary for terrorists. The U.S. invaded Afghanistan on October 7th with the stated aim of denying sanctuary to al-Qaeda and any like-minded terrorists. In particular, the United States needed to catch or kill bin Laden. My circles presume kill, but I have on authority that catch was preferred. The Taliban abandoned Kabul on November 12th. In December, bin Laden was almost cornered in the Tora Bora cave complex, but escaped. And while the Taliban were swept from government, it was clear that the terrorists were not defeated, but not clear who or what the terrorists precisely were. People kept shooting, hiding improvised explosive devices in the sand, blowing up vehicles and themselves, and so forth, for 20 years. The word sanctuary did important conceptual work. It localized the enemy in a space and warfare has traditionally been about the control of spaces, tactically, theaters. Sanctuary thus appeared to put an ideological enemy, Islamist terrorism, in its place, Afghanistan. This conceptualization quickly unraveled. Taking Kabul was not decisive. Moreover, while the U.S. asserted control of Afghanistan, the importance of neighboring countries, especially Pakistan, but what about Saudi Arabia, or Syria, or Egypt, Belgium, as sanctuaries, too, became inescapable of hardly clear. In fact, bin Laden was found in Pakistan, not Afghanistan, and killed on May second, 2011, almost 10 years after the U.S. invasion. I visited Pakistan in those days, spoke at the central bank, and was billeted in a fortified luxury hotel that, it emerged, was quite close to bin Laden's compound. Good times with the frenemies everywhere and nowhere. In a fine book, Streets Without Joy, A Political History of Sanctuary and War, 1959-2009, to Mike Innes shows how the sanctuary discourse that structured much of our thinking about Afghanistan and so our conduct of that war not merely recalled, but literally grew out of the earlier discourse of the Vietnam War, where Cambodia and Laos, nominally sovereign states, provided sanctuary for our adversaries. As my father, a paratrooper, said, we weren't supposed to be there, but there we were. Apocalypse Now, with Marlon Brando and Martin Sheen, takes place almost entirely in the sanctuary, which is alleged and yet denied violently. The word sanction itself is ambivalent, meaning both to punish and to allow, in either case holy as in sanctify, which of course calls sacrifice to mind of animals and as in the ultimate sacrifice. This maelstrom of words suggests that we did not know what we were really doing. Excellent film, though. Despite its conceptual weakness, the imagery of Afghanistan and neighboring countries as a sanctuary turned out to be very durable in practice. So long as bin Laden was alive, Afghanistan, and indeed Pakistan, were literally sanctuaries. Even after bin Laden was dead, the persistence of the Taliban and violence generally was understood to mean that Afghanistan was still serving as a sanctuary to the terrorists. For years, the Pentagon painted a picture of incremental progress which somehow was never cumulative, the military equivalent of bedspins. The U.S. expedition, then, had not achieved its aims, and the war must go on. Besides, and as in Vietnam, it was said that we could not leave, the United States did not cut and run, our alliances required us to stay, and so forth. Such things were said, even more forcefully, upon the eventual withdrawal from both theaters, providing yet another image of places abandoned, betrayed. And note that the key figure, again, is the United States, breaking its word. As suggested above, however, for much of Afghanistan, the narrative appears to have changed. The U.S. was an occupying power, supporting a very corrupt government, essentially the Vietnam narrative, and so the violence continued. The presence of the United States justified the violence, which justified the presence. The symbiotic nature of our war-making, Is perhaps the single most important lesson the United States did not learn in Vietnam. It is not clear how long mutually reinforcing violence could have been maintained in Afghanistan, but maybe even longer than 20 years. By the end of the war, the United States was taking very few casualties, and, in lieu of a strategy, maintained overwhelming tactical superiority in Kabul and a few other places, from which raids could be conducted as desired. The United States could have stayed longer, perhaps much longer, without too much bother or loss of American life, and in some quarters was urged to do so. The Afghanistans, for their part, were not going anywhere. The long hunt for bin Laden and the interminable denial of sanctuary provided time for still other Afghanistans, other understandings of what the hell we were doing, to emerge. Hawkes pointed out that Afghanistan was a fine place to have a few bases to discomfort adversaries or potential adversaries, just to maintain a presence in a place with four other nuclear states, deep animosities, unforgiving terrain, hazy and or disputed borders. It's the great game, baby, and we should be there. Even after it was clear that the United States was finally leaving, a few hawks complained over the loss of the bases. Maybe we could have leased bases from the Taliban, kind of like Guantanamo, with snow. Other folks thought the enterprise was or should be about nation-building. Terrorists seek sanctuary in lawless places like Afghanistan, or at least Al-Qaeda did. In response, we should build states, integrate our adversaries into the peaceful world order. After all, we transformed Germany and Japan. The Marshall Plan was great, and we really did win the peace. Just sometimes, maybe wars can make the world better. Why not Afghanistan? We were there already, the midwives of modernity building a modern state turns out to be very difficult perhaps impossible without the iron pleasures vast rewards and raw injustice of colonialism germany and japan in the 1930s no doubt had their evils but they were functioning states indeed that was partly why they were so militarily effective and even if one were to succeed in building a country say like belgium or britain or even the united states we might not be rid of terrorists who appear to like places like Brussels, London, and even Las Vegas. States are no guarantee against terrorism. More fundamentally and practically, the hawks and the doves never worked out a modus vivendi. The idea of bases facilitating force projection is antagonistic to the idea of nation-building. Carl Schmitt notwithstanding, killing is at odds with community. Militaries destroy things. With effort, armies can be redeployed to build roads, schools, and even hospitals. But build a political culture from scratch? How? As in Vietnam, did we think we could bomb the Afghans into the model? The Vietnamese lost millions, but for years we seem to have thought that if just a few more of them would die, the survivors would recognize their folly. Just a few more drone attacks, and the Afghans would somehow realize that their country should be just like Ohio, with green lawns and soccer on Saturdays, and then our presence would be entirely legitimate. To speak of nation building begs the question, what kind of nation? Nation building often shaded into the belief, revitalized by the Balkan and Rwandan conflicts, that liberal states should secure human rights through force, sometimes called the right to protect. It is hard not to sympathize with the thought that the United States should make Afghanistan safe for women and girls and even non cisgendered folks, regardless of what some Afghans think. We are not only midwives, we are crusaders, a term Islamist critics, in fact, use for our version of modernity. And even after it was clear that the United States was leaving, some progressives argued that we should honor our commitments to human rights, broadly construed and imposed by the sword as necessary. We should stay even longer, but how long? And exactly whose kids were supposed to swing the swords was left unclear. Thus, in the almost 50 years since the Soviet invasion, Afghanistan has named vastly different projects undertaken in accordance with different visions of our violence, which has been seen to discomfort the Soviets, help the Mujahideen, freedom fighters, lessen humanitarian disaster, engage in imperial destabilization, cause humanitarian disaster, deny sanctuary, kill bin Laden, build the nation, secure bases, promote human rights. We had such great plans, so many plans. To speculate, maybe if the United States were truly imperial, the invasion of Afghanistan could have worked. The United States, like many of the countries on the planet, is largely the fruit of imperial projects, Spanish, French, and especially English in our case. But empire requires commitment over time, ownership, intermarriage, so that the regime cannot be dismissed as merely foreign. Imperial efforts are, of course, illegal in contemporary international law, itself largely the product of U.S. efforts. Just how far the United States is from a true empire has been obscured by talk of cultural imperialism and soft power, which are important things, but which bear about the same relationship to empire that low wages bear to chattel slavery. Invading, killing, breeding, staying, owning, transforming is not what the United States does. We hunker down in bases, stocked with most of the comforts of our American homes, Coke machines, movie theaters, flags. No need to spend much time outside the wire, that is, in the actual country. We rotate people in and out. We did not even want Germany. We certainly never wanted Afghanistan, its land or its people. Never wanted to put down roots and make it ours. Indeed, as should be obvious by now. Afghanistan itself hardly figures in our arguments. Plans change. The canvas is pretty blank. Maybe a few mountains. I've been using we to mean the United States as a polity. When speaking of security policy, however, it is more precise to say that our government paints the picture for us, leaving us to hope that we are fairly represented. The tip of the spear gets all the attention, but the projection of force and the conduct of security policy generally is an essentially bureaucratic endeavor. Somebody has to decide what is desirable, what is possible, persuade the chief executive, sell the decision to the legislature, the press, and so the people. And that is just the politics. Crucially, somebody has to plan, To coordinate to make sure the guns and vehicles and fuel and people and so forth are where they need to be to carry out the mission du jour. While hardly free from the constraints of the past, bureaucracies have their needs now. At different points in time, the United States security community needed or felt that it needed to say different things in Afghanistan, ranging from sticking it to the Soviets to supporting the rights of women. Our government may be making history but they are not thinking much about history because they are busy doing politics. And so, while there is expertise and the inevitable influences of the past, to speak of learning is a bit misleading. We did not learn from Vietnam because that was just a canvas too back then. We were in Afghanistan for very different reasons and were saying different things or the same things again because we believed we needed to say them at that juncture. Vietnam had nothing much to do with it. Unsurprisingly, many of the same mistakes were made. The title of this essay is taken from a traditional Irish folk song, Johnny, We Hardly Knew You. An Irishman leaves his woman and child to fight for the British Empire. Through the Candian Wars, 1796 to 1818, the British colonized Ceylon, today's Sri Lanka. The Irishman returns maimed and the woman keens. You haven't an arm, you haven't a leg, hurroo, hurroo. You haven't an arm, you haven't a leg, hurroo, hurroo. You haven't an arm, you haven't a leg. You're an eyeless, boneless, chickenless egg. You'll have to be left with a bowl to beg. Johnny, I hardly knew you. The brutal words are discordantly and effectively set to a march. Americans may abashedly recall the blindly patriotic when Johnny comes marching home, sung to the same tune. It is worth noting, though, that the British won the Candian Wars and went on to rule Ceylon for well over a century. The British certainly had more stomach for empire building then than the United States has now, probably ever had. At any rate, rather than own Afghanistan, take their youth, and raise babies, we left the place, as everyone knew we would. Presumably, we will continue to develop the projection of force through essentially Byzantine means drones and assassinations and the like that increasingly have become the American way of not quite war. Maybe such projections will be successful, at least on their own terms, although elsewhere I have argued that our new violence is hard to admire and may therefore fail to persuade anyone of our legitimacy. Be such things as they may, legless seems an apt epithet, an epitaph, for our Afghan war, strewn with minds that one might naively think could have been avoided if only we had learned. This has been Afghanistan, We Hardly Knew You, While We Didn't Learn From Vietnam, Episode 5 of Intermittent Signal. The music has been composed, performed, and produced by Vince Parlotto. I'm David A. Westbrook. Until next time, and I hope there is a next time, be well.